0: The Innovators Network. Kim McNicholas on Innovation. Spotlighting successful entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and industry experts. Their stories and insights can help you become better informed, better educated, and a better investor. Your host is Emmy Award winning anchor, reporter, and writer Kim McNicholas. Kim has been a journalist at Forbes Magazine, a Fox News Channel contributor, vetted more than 3,000 startups, and has been a mentor for entrepreneurs around the globe. Now, Kim McNicholas on innovation.
1: We have a special show planned today that's going to get you ready for the holidays because this show is all about the most innovative beverages that you could have at your dinner table over the holidays and maybe even used to... Bring in the new year. Or maybe it's not necessarily the most innovative beverages, but the most innovative people behind those beverages. And I couldn't think of a better person to kick off this show than Claude Blanquette. He is a co-founder, I would say, of Blanquette Estate and Blanquette Wines in the Napa Valley. And he is, get this, a pioneer of stone washing, stone washing of jeans, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, to think you went from stone washing of jeans to wine. And we'll get to how that happened a little bit later. But you and I first met many years ago when I was working at Forbes magazine. And what I thought was so awesome is that your wine is so good and tastes so high-end. And it is high-end, but we're not talking $10,000 wine bottle. There was a very high-profile case where your wine was used to counterfeit other wines.
2: Yeah, mostly Petrus. <laughs> <laughs> this was on the CNBC video on the, the arrest of Woody korniaven and uh, when the the, the, the Fed uh, raided the house and filmed all the content in the kitchen area, they saw a chef where he had his uh, uh, bottles and recipes uh, to make uh, a certain great wine. And, um, and on the shelf, he had several bottles of our Merlot two thousand three vintage, which was, you know, a very good vintage at the time. <laughs> and um, that was apparently uh, one of the components for him to make uh, old Petrus.
1: Was uh, that one of those moments where you're like, okay, we made it, we did it?
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it it was it was definitely a. Uh, uh, a fun thing, considering that our uh, neighbor down below is, is the owner of Chateau Petrus. Uh, oh, wow. You know, you know the Dominus Vineyard uh, just oh, below wow. us is also <laughs> the owner of Petrus, so <laughs> small world there.
1: <laughs> and here it, here it is. Here you are, coming in as someone who had no experience in wines before starting this winery, and just
2: as a consumer, I had I think pretty good experience as a tasting consumer wine. <laughs> tasting <laughs> <He> wine. <liked. laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> well, I, I grew up in Burgundy, you know, oh. so uh, and a lot of the friends who, whose family were in the wine business. Uh, I had the chance to to drink great wine early on, and my mother was a great cook too. So, so food, the link between food and wine was was there for for early on. So.
1: So how did you start off in the jean business then? Why didn't you go directly into the wine business?
2: Well, uh, no, my family was not in the, in the wine business, but was well, in you the textile. Wine. You the yeah. right area? But I was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they were in the textile. My family has been in textile in Europe for a few okay. generations. So I um, went to law school in Dijon, and after law school, I went to the family business, I ended up being in the textile industry. And uh, I had visited. Um, uh, America several times, spent some time in New York, and in the early 70s, um, I had noticed that in uh, in, in New York, the, the fashion was uh, was still very traditional, and in sportswear was basically inexistent, and and uh, while in France, um, things were happening uh, for, for young people. So I, th- I saw an opportunity, I saw something that was missing here. So the um, the idea came to fruition, and in 1976 I moved to New York to to get in the jean business and, and, and went into a partnership with a with a very um, successful jean company uh, in France, Buffalo Jeans. And I was in New York, based in New York, for quite a few years, and we were basically making jeans in Kentucky and in Texas. But I quickly realized that I should not be uh, spending time Sewing jeans, making jeans that I should be washing jeans and dyeing them, and and. Um,
1: but I mean, you have to have some sort of innovative process to be able to say, okay, um, I want to. People really like worn jeans, and they want them to be worn in certain areas. How do we do this without um, having someone wear them for a few years?
2: What I've s- seen is. Uh, all, all the jeans in America at the time in the 70s were uh, traditional jeans, dark denim, and, and you know. But everybody had in their uh, uh, closet an old pair, right. an old pair of faded, soft jeans with uh, wear, you know, marks, and and um, and it was that that weekend pair that we all love to mm-hmm. to to get into. But uh, unfortunately. Uh, what happened to them? We outgrow them because we gain weight, or we, we we end up getting paint or grease on them, or or rip them, and then we cannot replace them. So my idea was to figure out an industrial way of duplicating those fatal genes of all. Worn jeans.
1: And what is so amazing about your mindset is you were able to take and, and look outside your industry for those ideas, and that's a true innovator
2: yes yes and and uh, maybe I, i'm generalizing uh, yeah, a little bit yeah, yeah, too much no, <laughs> <laughs> no but at first was was just using <laughs> all washing machines, old tumblers that were jaunt because they they were not efficient anymore. <laughs>
1: the first ever recycling.
2: Yeah, so <laughs> I, I I used to buy old machines from okay. uh, from hospital or from uh, from actually one time we bought some equipment used equipment in a prison near Chicago. <laughs> the, oh no way! Yeah. But to to age gene they were just the perfect uh, mm-hmm. the perfect tool, and uh, and 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 trying to add. The, the ingredient and, and tampering them, we tried uh, a lot of things you know that was uh, i mean uh, from from uh, from peach pits to stones to finally finding the right stones, the pumice stone uh... to uh... able to wear the jeans the without ripping them apart mm-hmm. so that, that took uh, a, a, a good year of experimentation and uh, I got uh, Levi Strauss to to be interested in mm-hmm. what we were doing and through them I had the uh... uh the credibility to visit uh, and meet uh... engineers from machine manufacturers or chemical manufacturers and uh, and and get them uh, interested in in my project, which was trying to figure out how to industrialize the the mm-hmm. look of uh, an all-pair of jeans. So I met uh, um, in in uh, in Denmark uh, engineers uh, chemists from NO Industries that were making a cellulase enzyme that were used in the apple industry mm-hmm. and the grape industry. To break down the cellulosic fiber of uh, apple in order to squeeze more juice out of the pulp of apple. Mm. Well, that the, those type of enzymes used in combination of of uh, uh, p- with pumice, with shortening the cycle of tumbling uh, in half and reducing the 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 quality of pumice stone that we had to put in a machine uh, also tremendously. So achieving a, a better look and preserving the integrity of the fabric. So that was a major d- discovery that uh, we stumbled on.
1: A major discovery that he stumbled upon, but I would say that he almost attracted it with his innovative mindset. And in a sense, I would argue maybe he's come a little bit full circle going back to the fruits of his labor. And we'll have more with Claude at coming up in just a moment. So stay with us.
0: Now back to Kim McNicholas on innovation.
1: Welcome back to the show. We're with Claude Blanquiad with Blanquiad Estates. And before the break, he is, we were talking that he is a, also a pioneer in stonewashing, like stonewashing of jeans. And he just is an incredibly innovative person. And, you know, just across the board has this innovator's mindset. And I thought I'd be one of the first to go in there and, <laughs> and bring this to the forefront. But turns out, you know, you've made it when you have a book that analyzes your mindset, Innovation, The Missing Dimension. Is one, but then the Harvard Business Review came in and put a name to your way of thinking. It's called interpretive management. Uh,
2: Things that I think were of interest is my ability of, of going from. From one world to the other, and use what I needed to accomplish my goals. And
1: uh, you became that tailor you never thought that you would. Yes, be. I became a
2: tailor. I became <laughs> an interpreter. I of became together. a link of, uh, between right. different industries. And um, and
1: you were saying the the big thing is the you know there's a difference between their creators and there are interpreters, and right. that's why when the Harvard Business Review came out, it, their title is interpretive management, and exactly. that's more of exactly. your style, yeah. and that's and the, the style of a true innovator.
2: Yes. So I'm not a true innovator. I mean, I came up with a few things in life probably that I was maybe the first one to do, but most of the thing is just using other people's ideas or other people's equipment or technique or chemical and, and find a proper application to help me out in, in, in my thing. So it, it was a very, very interesting uh, time uh, uh, to be at the beginning of a new industry in America. It was just like a, a roller coaster for... for 15, 20 years, and uh, we became, uh, you know, the largest uh, denim finisher in the world. We had five factories, 2,000 people. We were producing uh, over half a million jeans per week, and... And it, it, it was also taxing. It was a fantastic. Uh, but you uh, were just thing. by that but
1: point. By what year, two thousand? You were just kind of done, and you yes, were ready to retire that, from by it.
2: That, by that time, NAFTA had passed, and the, the, the textile mill had moved out of the country overseas. And mm-hmm. Overseas. So
1: okay, you were thinking, hmm, what else am I passionate about? My wife and I love wine. It's, I'm a lifelong learner, exactly. which is needed, another characteristic. I need to find something
2: mm-hmm. that I would be passionate about. And that will give us also a new life, a new right. style of life.
1: And you already had property in the Napa Valley. And so here's wow. what I find interesting is, is you, because you just have you know, connections or, around the world and have known about the wine industry for a long time and come from Burgundy, that you had access to some of the top, tippy-top winemakers, some of the most successful winemakers in the world. But what you found was that they were limited by what they knew. And you were looking for someone who was fresh, willing to be, have that interpretive sense to them to yes. do something I mean, new.
2: I, I grew up I grew up in Burgundy, so Burgundy is all uh, about terroir, about mm-hmm. small estates and that are focusing on the on the uh, the, the characteristic of their land. Um, and a lot of the winemakers that uh, I had met in uh, at the beginning uh, of my uh, of my adventure in in, in wine, were um, very talented people, but uh, uh, very set in their ways, and and it, it just just did not work well with me. And 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 I wanted some
1: uh, those folks that are stale and jaded. And I know that everybody who's listening knows those people that are supposed experts in their respective industries, but. They keep repeating what they already know
2: yes and and, and the, the the thing that is uh that is uh, so unique in, in wine is all the knowledge that you can have is can be applicable for one piece of property and you go to another piece of land and you have to start again from scratch mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 people that are well set in their ways and have been maybe successful in their ways are just not. Uh, uh, willing uh, uh, and then have the time or uh, humility to go back again and <clears throat> and start from scratch and that is the necessary thing in, in to be successful in making fine wine is to find a site and to be respectful of the site and to let the site produce uh, the natural flavors that the site is capable of producing so that f- worked well with me and, and, and my interest uh, in 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 uh, in making wine was was to make basically the, the best wine that that site was capable of making.
1: And that comes from paying more attention to your impulses versus what's written in a book.
2: The key was for me to uh, is when I had learned enough where I could make decisions about wine making and let go of the higher talent and just do what I felt needed to be done. Yes. And just rely on my taste, and just say, okay, I'm going to try to make what I like, and I hope that other people will like it. And, uh, and that was really the success uh, in our wine, was to, to, to let go of all that uh, uh, studied and, and, and preconceived ideas that uh, uh, things should be done a certain way. Um, and um, by then I had uh, found people that were thinking the same way than, uh, than I did, uh, new winemakers that were uh, uh, humble and, and willing to, 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 to walk the, the land uh, repetitively and, and study things and, uh, and and let go of their learned uh, knowledge.
1: Um, you know as an, a true innovator you 're always a lifelong learner you 're always learning lessons and adapting to the lessons that you learned.
2: I had a long life experience of tasting wine, so I was a pretty good taster, I would say <laughs> but um, what i what i I think was able to bring to our uh, our property here is uh, uh, again, what I had learned from the genius tree is to uh, use things that um, were not done traditionally, and uh, I will I I'll give you an example. Uh, Napa Valley is a beautiful uh, place in the world to grow wine. It's a blessed area, but you know, we have a lot of sun here, and, and the excess of sun, especially I would say the last ten or fifteen years, uh, has been a, has been a problem, where we burn grapes and and we roast flavors and. And So it, it, it became uh, uh, absolutely necessary to find a way to mitigate the effect of the excess of, of sun. So we started in 2004 by using uh, shade cloths uh, to uh, protect the uh, uh, the fruiting zone of uh, of the vineyard from the excess of radiation, and um, and it became. Um, it worked very very well, and we have uh, now the, our whole vineyard we have sixty thousand linear feet of of uh, of shade fabric that are mm. protecting the, the grapes and we can lower them or 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 raising them like louvers uh, following the the the, the, the heat uh, and the weather and uh, and just uh, and now a lot of the people in the valley are are using shade clothes. but we also, I also saw some. Uh, one day I was in Palm Palm Desert, and uh, and it was in the middle of summer. It was uh, it was 110 degrees. But walking in the street, um, I, I've seen misters, you know, above the, uh, the sidewalk, and and and, 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 and the fine mist was was cooling the, the, mm. the temperature quite a yeah. bit. And I say, well, that's that's that. I wish I could Figure out a way to replicate uh, that. Replicate that uh, idea. Uh, so we we started uh, doing that in the vineyard and 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 thousands and thousands and thousands of little emitters, vaporizing water again at the footing zone. So on one end, the shade pro- protected the grave from from the sun radiation, but the misting, the evaporation of that fine mist was cooling, was dropping the temperature about 15 to 20 degrees at the footing zone. So we're achieving two things, sun protection, sun radiation, and temperature reduction. And it, 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 it worked. Now, it, people thought that was maybe crazy, but it, it did work. So we are continuing that... Uh, that uh, uh, that experimentation now with new misters that are mm. uh, reducing the particle size of water, so you have really a really really fine fine mist, without wetting the grapes, without creating an issue that you may have with a fungal disease, but it just evaporate the water so quickly and and drop the temperature just enough to survive those those heat spikes. Uh, and uh, and and this year was a typical uh, uh, was not a typical year. It was a year where we had tremendous seed spikes. So all those innovations, some of that I got from other industries or other applications, uh, have been very very helpful in our in our business.
1: And being a true innovator, I mean, you, a lot of winemakers are at the mercy of Mother Nature. But because of your adaptability and your ability to go and look at other industries and see what they're doing there and being able to bring those in, you might be able to withstand and, and be in Mother Nature's met-her-match. Yes, match. yes. Uh,
2: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always interested in trying things. So most of the time they don't work, you know. But we, you keep trying. You keep trying. And once a while, you know, you, you just hit the jackpot and something works, you know. So that, that's the way we do things. And our team is 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 doing that. All the people that we have involved in our in our vineyard or in our winery, are just thinking the same. They're all enthusiastic about trying things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, and
1: I think that's so key. I bet n- I, I don't know where it can't be done or it's never been done is probably not something that's acceptable to you as an employer.
2: No, I don't want to to, to hear that from, uh, from, from from my people. I just want to see. Uh, give, to me hear, you know, give me a solution. Give me a solution. How let's can try we this make it happen? Let's try that, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and eventually, um, you know, if you, if you if your mindset is is to, to to try things, you will find the right you will find the correct solution to your problem.
1: And that's definitely advice that'll transcend industries. Absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much, Claude Claude Blankiet with Blankiet Estate. We'll Thank be back you. in just a moment.
0: Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation.
1: Welcome back to the show. I am so excited. This show is all about the most innovative beverages of this holiday season, or should I say most innovative people behind the hottest beverages that you're going to want to bring to your next holiday party or even to the family table this holiday season? Because why bring some random bottle of wine that you pick up at the local market that is just only going to get lost on the table of other wines that everybody else brings this holiday season so that's why we talked about Blankiet in the last segment now I want to introduce you to probably the hottest woman in all of spirits we have Corinne Luna mm-hmm. Ostaseski she has the first ever well I should say she is the first American woman to create a blended scotch whiskey right That's correct. And who just, congratulations to you. You are in 106 BevMo's across California.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show.
1: And here it is that you started out as a creative director in corporate America. How did you make the shift into beverages? What was the catalyst for you?
3: Yeah. um, So I, I love scotch. I was always that friend that was trying to convince everybody else to drink scotch But everybody always said, you know, it's uh, my grandfather's drink or it burns my nostrils, tastes like gasoline. And what I learned (laughs) quickly was that when it came to scotch, the nose was the most important thing in convincing someone that's new to the category. So with Sia, you get a lot of vanilla and caramel on the nose, almost no smoke at all, a little bit of honey and citrus on the mid-palate. And what's unique about Sia is that you get the smoke, but it's only on the finish. So that appeals to somebody who's new to scotch as well as someone who already likes it. And um, award-winning, 96
1: points, uh, double gold medals. Uh, it's right. Isn't the, it the lowest cost, 96-point Scotch whiskey? It is. Yeah. Um, so it's great value at a very low price. Uh, and beautiful packaging.
3: So it makes for a wonderful gift or hostess gifted.
1: You kind of joke that, you know, you spent the couple counseling money when you, you know, had a big <laughs> breakup on Scotch <laughs> yeah. whiskey. And that's really... What I hear was that ultimate catalyst for you. Um,
3: So it's kind of an embarrassing story that I didn't used to share, and now I share completely (laughs) and openly. But it was actually through a breakup that I started drinking a lot of scotch. (laughs) Through Um, contrast brings clarity. Exactly. Um, So I had all this extra money every week that I no longer needed for couples counseling. And so every Friday, I'd go to my local whiskey shop, and I'd buy two, three, four, sometimes even five, Really nice bottles of scotch. (laughs) And by the the end of the year, I had almost 300 bottles in my collection. Oh my gosh. From that relationship. And and I started using the collection to really learn what brands people like and what they don't like and why. And that's how I I started coming up with the idea for Sia.
1: But what made you go from a scotch and whiskey connoisseur? to having the cojones to go out there and take on the big boys, the beverage industry, an overly yeah. crowded market and people who have been in this industry for generations upon generations.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you've got a lot of old brands targeting old people with, you know, the same old techniques. So I thought it was time for someone to come in and shake up the, the market a little bit. And thankfully it's been really well received. Um yeah, uh, you know, the packaging stands out on the shelf, the name is something that you can actually pronounce, <laughs> and the spirit is something that you can enjoy um, in a variety of different ways.
1: So talk about how you actually got started, because you had absolutely no experience in doing this, and you were yeah. working full-time as well. So this was a little mm-hmm. bit of a, you know, kitchen-laboratory project for, project for it a long time. Was. Yeah,
3: so I, um, I basically, uh, I started blending in my own kitchen. I was reading about whiskey blenders and they take other whiskeys to create new formulas to get a specific flavor profile. And once I came up with something that was very well received at these tasting events where I was doing blind tastings up against existing brands, um, I reached out to pretty much every distillery, uh, independent bottler, contractor, uh, you know, uh, in importer, you can imagine. And I got 80 no's. No, we're not interested. No, we can't work with you. No, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and I remember really clearly it was the 81st person that said, yes, we can help you. Um, and, uh, wow. they, uh, they guided me through the whole process of, you know, everything from the label creation and, you know, like regulations and, um, manufacturing partners. And that whole process took a while. Um, I was working my full-time job and then freelance. Uh, doing freelance design work so that I could pay for the consulting help so, while I was building my business. So it was basically like working three jobs for about three years um, and, to get it off the ground.
1: And you had the first crowdf- crowdfunded scotch in US history, raising $50,000 online. And mm-hmm. h- at what point were you able to launch that Kickstarter where you said, okay, I'm ready to at least now go beyond my own budget, maxing out my own credit cards to mm-hmm. go out and say you know what i need a little help yeah so that was at the end of 2012 and crowdfunding was still relatively new so um
3: thankfully i had a lot of friends being in the bay area that are familiar with kickstarter and had accounts with it and i had contributed to some kickstarter campaigns including a brewery uh, for two guys that i thought was, was really interesting out in philadelphia and so i saw that the process was really interesting from you know, a funder's point of view, or a backer, rather, on Kickstarter, you get to see the whole journey and watch it all come together. And I wanted to share that with my friends and family who had seen the whole process from from start to finish. So uh, what was great at Starter, it was the highest raise in Kickstarter's history for a spirit at the time, and the first time anybody had crowdfunded a scotch. So it got a lot of media attention, and I had people all over the world asking me, hey, where can I buy a bottle of Sia? And all of this happened before a single bottle had hit the U.S. uh, soil.
1: It's so interesting because... So many people out there will look on the job boards and, or come up with an an idea and they'll say, well, I can't do this. I can't apply there. I can't launch this product because I have no experience. And I remember Sir Richard Branson had a, a great line um, where he said, don't let what you don't know and have never done before get in the way of living out your dream, of having an impact or whatever you might want to say. Um, Mm -hmm. what is it about you or your raise or that someone has said to you that made it so that you, even though you might've had a fear of tackling what you don't know, you still went ahead and you had the courage to do so.
3: Yeah. I think in some ways it becomes something that you can't not do and you just feel it in your bones that this is, this is something that that you need to bring to the world. I was finding coming back from my day job as a designer Sitting at a computer desk all day and designing applications so that people could stare at their phones all day. <laughs> and that's not what I want my legacy to be. I love that a whiskey is something that you can sit down with a friend and enjoy and have a conversation. You know, it's not a party drink or a shot. You really you take your time. It takes a long time to create the whiskey. So there's almost a, a respect around
1: how you enjoy it. How is it that you balance the appreciation of where you are versus where you want to be? Hmm. Uh, In terms of a a business perspective? Exactly. Because, you know, you could have this amazing blended scotch whiskey and you could have a very small audience and be very, very happy. Or you could, you know, have this small audience and always say, well, I don't appreciate where I'm at. It's too small. I want it here. I want it here. I want it here. And Mm -hmm. never get there because you don't stop to appreciate where you're at.
3: Oh, I think, uh, it's appreciating every moment along the way as, as an entrepreneur, especially for me, this is my first time, uh, running a business. Every, every turn is something new and fascinating to, to really dig into and explore. And, and, you know, thankfully I'm surrounded by a network of, of people who have been through, through the trenches, you know, not necessarily in the spirits industry, but in other, other businesses. So it's, um, it's really easy for me to reach out and ask for advice. And, and then in those moments, you know, you get some people that are a little bit, farther ahead of you there are some people that are way farther ahead of you and then there's some people that are slightly behind that you get
1: the opportunity to help them along and and that's a real joy what do you appreciate the most about this journey the greatest lesson maybe that you learned along the way that you would have never have learned if it was <laughs> snap your fingers and suddenly you're the number one blended scotch whiskey in the world Wow.
3: Um, I think that there's this um what's happening lately and actually since the beginning of the brand, I made a conscious choice that I wanted to give a percentage of my sales every year towards female entrepreneurship charity. Oh, you're kidding. You know, yeah. I mean the spirit is, is obviously for both men and women, but um finding that, you know, it's very difficult, especially, you know, now as I'm in the midst of a fundraise and, you know, there's uh there's challenges coming towards being a solo entrepreneur female raising money especially in Silicon Valley where everything is surrounded you know with tech companies um you know having a way to to give back and that's something that that continuously brings me joy um and hearing from some of the women that Sia has helped um it just it keeps me going
1: do you find that it's so much easier though in raising money when you actually target the people who know what you're talking about <laughs> people yeah, who have experience um, in the yeah. industry I
3: mean yeah they they come with you know excellent advice and feedback and connections and um you know they've 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 navigated these waters before, so they kind of they can help steer you in a way and it's not even necessarily someone from the spirits industry but people with a retail background or someone who's built the brand
1: or just a you know consumer packaged goods product in general um so yeah i've seen it seen it from all all avenues so right before what a way to end two thousand seventeen and hundred six. BevMo's throughout California. What is your ultimate goal for 2018?
3: Yeah, um, so Sia has also uh, got accepted into all the total wine and more stores across California wow. and Nevada. Um, and um, we're looking to expand into some more chains. So uh, Whole Foods, Costco, Cosplus, Trader Joe's. Um, yeah, you name it. And we look forward <laughs> to
1: seeing it. And if they want to find out more, where do they go? SiaScotch.com.
3: Yeah, CSGOTS online,
1: CSGOTS.com, and you can order online. Uh, there's a, a free shipping code there for your listeners. Perfect. Thank you so much, Corinne. Really appreciate Thank you it. You too. Coming up next on the show, a 90-calorie beer that's infused with natural lemon. Oh, you don't want to miss this story from chiropractor to beer CEO. Stay with us.
0: Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation.
1: He started his career as a doctor of chiropractic with San Francisco's A-list most eligible bachelor, Mr. Silicon Valley Man of the Year. He created a software company to help alleviate the cumbersome intake forms and insurance verifications. And now is in the last business you'd ever imagine, adult beverages. Oh, my goodness. Now, fast forward, you know, Robert Nathanson entered the adult beverages industry after realizing that if the mass public were going to drink alcohol anyway, he might as well give them a little bit of a healthy spin. So he teamed up with a contestant on CBS's Survivor Show, and together they created an antioxidant-rich z E rum, and they won best spirit at the nightclub and bar show in the emerging brands in Las Vegas. And now he's moved on to what I might call skinny beer with a splash or a little dose of vitamin C. He is CEO of Palmia Beer, which is a 90 calorie beer inspired by Spain. And it's brewed right here in the U.S. with a lemon infusion. Natural flavor, I promise. Robert, thank you for being here. You know, I really want to hear it in your own words, though, that shift from being a chiropractor in San Francisco to adult beverages.
4: Yes. Hey, Kim. Thank (laughs) you so much for having me on. Um, You know, as a kid, I truly loved science. And figuring out complex things was what I liked the best. And it all started as a kid, as I was saying, when I was eight years old. A family, friend, chiropractor changed my life for the better. And guess what? I got to treat people who lost hope with conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. And I was able to witness some incredible results. But today, today the beverage industry has grown so much. As you know, in the past years, there's a new drink coming out, what, every five seconds?
1: Just about. See a A new commercial all the time.
4: Uh, uh, And and distilled this and distilled that. Well, what gets what? We wanted to make something. We wanted to make something better. We wanted to change something. So we figured out that the craft industry is about $109 billion. That's a lot.
1: That's a huge number.
4: And it's raising 13% year over year. So we thought, hey, what's better? Beer.
1: <laughs> I love that. Why was Z your entry into adult beverages, though?
4: Uh, well, Z it was funny. We uh, got together with some friends in the kitchen and we were mixing this really good Silvercraft rum with a tropical berry called acai. And we were able to infuse it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, this is the best drink I've ever had. We should, <laughs> we should, and we ma-
1: made it right here in our kitchen. <laughs> we
4: should, you know, follow all the rules and regulations. And see if we can enter this in the nightclub and bar show. And guess what? We won Best New Spirit of the Year 2012, beat out Tycoon. Oh, wow. And it was an emerging brand. And we had so much fun with it. We're like, this is awesome.
1: And so now you're on to beer. How did this happen?
4: Well, let me tell you, a friend of mine, um, he – we were 17 years old. And, you know, he really wanted to date my older sister.
1: Oh, nice.
4: And I even have a picture of their senior ball together. So funny enough – I can use that anytime I want. <laughs> but you know we kept in touch and he went on to dentistry school and he's actually now my dentist, which is convenient.
1: So you better do well or else you might get a um <laughs> a yes. tooth pulled that you didn't want pulled. <laughs> but the one thing I really love about
4: him is he's a perfectionist at his work. Mm-hmm. And around the same time we were developing our rum, he developed a lemon-infused lager that was 90 calories. And I saw this as an opportunity but one thing had to be changed. I wanted it to be 100% natural. Mm. So I took over uh, as CEO of the company about oh, two, two years, years ago. years ago, yeah. And in 19 short weeks, we've gotten some insane traction because of its uniqueness of the 90 calories, 100% natural, and we brew it right here in the United States.
1: Was this something that you also experimented with in your kitchen?
4: Um, we actually went through (laughs) a bigger house for this because we thought we're onto something. Let's do this right.
1: So when it comes to any beverage, I mean, how were you really able, you and your business partner able to find this niche? I mean, you seriously found a niche no one else has been able to exploit.
4: Yeah. So we, uh, it's all started when, uh, you know, my business partner went on a vacation to Mallorca, Spain and everyone was drinking these Calara's which as we refer to here as a shandy. But as you know, shandies are loaded with calories. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes not all natural and they have a ton of carbohydrates where most of the dark beers out there are about 145 to 185 it calories.
1: a full meal. Per 12 <laughs>
4: ounces. So it's one price to pay. We were able to cut that to 90 calories infusing an all natural flavor, which is that lemon zest you mm-hmm. you taste. And we believe that we're... We're onto something that our customers is looking for, and that's a great taste, uh, low-calorie beer that won't make you feel bloated. And since we're on the topic of holidays and New Year's resolutions, what better than to enjoy a light beer that literally has half the calories? Um, funny story. I, I saw something on social media recently where it says my New Year resolution is to lose 15 pounds, only 20 to go.
1: Fantastic. So talk about how you took this trendy approach to creating the initial adoption for the beer. Because as I said, it's really hard to break into this $109 billion industry.
4: Right. So we we turned to the crowd and we we saw a an equity play uh, crowdfunding source. Can I say their name? Sure. It's WeFunder. And we met with the the founder and CEO, and we really liked what their mission statement was. And we thought this is this is something we can do. And in only 48 hours, we raised over $50,000. Wow. Our goal was 100000 and we reached over $200,000. Oh, my goodness. Which went to production and some of our sales.
1: And now you're in all Bay Area BevMo's. You're in Target. I mean, how in the world did you get into those places? We were just talking to Corinne um, with Sia, and it took her 10 years to get into um, all the BevMo's in California. This is two years.
4: Two years, yeah. Well, we're all about meeting merchants face-to-face and giving them a taste of our new 90-calorie lager. And it's surprisingly because I'm going to go all in here, but 9 out of 10 say this is the best beer I've ever tasted. And when they find out it's 90 calories, they say, when can we get it? A scenario we did with um, one of uh, the larger retailers out there is Target. We sent them a sample and – as soon as they opened the box, within two minutes, they said, when, "When can we get it?"
1: Oh, that's awesome. And now you're in all kinds of bed modes. you're throughout San Francisco. What's next? You're looking hopefully at at and Park and all of the above. You have about five seconds.
4: Yes, yeah, so as, seeing us on the menu at restaurants like Licious, Rosa, that's everything to us. And
1: if they want to find out more, palmiabeer.com or palmia.com.
4: Call me at beer.com.
1: Thanks so much, Robert. Have a great weekend.
0: This has been Kim McNicholas on Innovation. You can connect with Kim on Facebook, forward slash Kim McNicholas, or email KimMcNicholas at gmail.com. Be sure to join us again next Friday at 1 for Kim McNicholas on Innovation. This show is distributed by The Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit TheInnovators.network.